you know, there is loneliness as well. A lot of people feel lonely and don't really feel connected. So it's not, I think, about the number of people you're surrounded with. You do need to have connections with others, but you also need to connect with yourself. Welcome, everyone, to Culture by Design. This is Tim Clark, and I have with me today Caroline von Koenig. She's joining us from London. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We're just delighted. Let me tell uh, our listeners a little bit about Caroline. She was born and raised in Germany and educated, now listen to this, in England, Ireland, France, and Scotland, and now calls London home. An identity crisis in her early 20s led to her pursuing a master's in cultural identity studies. We need to talk about that, Caroline, when we get a chance. Again. <laughs> <laughs> and sparked a passion for personal development, aspiring to become her best self. She cares passionately about helping people maximize their potential and creating a psychologically safe and inclusive environment where everyone can be truly themselves. Caroline is a certified mindfulness teacher, transformational coach, and mental health first aider, and has a background in teaching and people and change consulting. In her current role as Fidelity International's global well-being lead, Caroline helps create a well-being-centric culture where employees feel well-supported and are able to thrive, asking for help when they need it. I love that. They're able to ask for help when they need it. You can't impose that on people. You no, know? you can't. It's, yeah. Yeah. We don't say it that way explicitly, right? But that's the way it needs to be. I think that's marvelous. She is leading Fidelity's global well-being strategy focused on four holistic well-being pillars. Workplace, mind, body, and life. She is also helping to improve accessibility and enablement for employees with disabilities and health conditions, including neurodiversity, invisible illnesses, and mental health. You just have a magnificent background. Can we go back just a little bit? So you were born and raised in Germany, and then you came to England. Take us through your journey a little bit. England, Ireland, France, and Scotland, that's highly unusual. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it's all thanks to my parents who were very supportive. And I think back day I was 16 years old and I was begging them, please, I need to see more of the world. Um, can I go abroad? Can I go to England? Um, I'd love to go to school there. And they were fully supportive. Uh, so I completed my education, my A-levels in England and then decided to not go back and studied at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland for four years with a year abroad in, in France. And yeah, just took it from there. And then Never went back, really, um, if I'm being really honest. So I've lived half my life abroad now and became a British citizen only two years ago. So, yeah, citizen of the world. Yes, you are. You are a global citizen. In your bio, you mention, in a pretty matter-of-fact way, you had an identity crisis in your early 20s, and that helped, I guess, motivate you to pursue a master's in cultural identity studies. Tell us about that. I think. It's only in hindsight that I can phrase it that way. I think back then I was just really curious and interested to learn about cultures and belonging. And I think it is because I wasn't really sure who I was and where I belonged. 
Um, and I needed to figure that out. Probably I should have gone and maybe speak to a therapist or a counsellor about it. But rather than that, I was like, no, I'm going to the, the, down the academic route and I learn everything about it. And I think it's because I, I wasn't sure then, even that I wasn't quite feel like I wasn't really fitting in anywhere because I had so many different parts of me. And I've been so fortunate to experience so many different cultures. So it's almost like, well, well who's Caroline then? I don't really fully fit in anywhere. That's how I sort of felt and felt for a very long time. I had a difficult time, I think, after I left university. I just wasn't quite sure. So I wanted to learn more and really understand and I guess find out where I belong. And that's been, as I said, I've been so passionate about personal development ever since. I always want to learn and grow and listen to myself. Who am I? What do I need? What are my values? What do I want to achieve? How can I really be my authentic self? And I think to do that, you also need to do that work and really understand what are the different cultural views or frame of references that are being imposed on you by the life that you lead and, and the groups that you're part of. So I just find it really fascinating to yeah study about that and learn more about it. What did you learn about identity and your own identity having gone through that process? Because it seems to me that you continue to simply add dimensions of identity more and more and more. And that became perhaps a little destabilizing to you. But what did you learn in the end? I think it's that home is where the heart is. That might sound a little bit cringe and cliche, but it's about you need to be so rooted and comfortable in yourself and who you are so that wherever you go, you show up as your full self. You're not tied to just one location or one person or one object, whatever it is. It is just you're so at ease and happy with yourself that wherever you go, you bring home with you. And that's continuously what I'm working on and, and you know what I aspire to be. And I think that's about constant an inquiry. And it's also understanding really how you perceive yourself and how other people perceive you. There's an American um, uh, sociologist, um, Charles Cooley, he has that looking glass self theory that I find so fascinating. And listen to this, I'm going to say it slowly because it's a little bit, you wrap your mind around it. It's you are not who you think you are. You are not who other people think you are. You are who you think other people think you are. So it's kind of like the perception of yourself is actually what you think other people project of you. But more often than not, you don't have a clue. You just make that assumption up. And I think you need to strip back from that and step away from that and being like, well, it doesn't matter what other people think or worse even what I think other people think to then come up with my own identity it's more like well who am I really and am I showing up authentically that's what it's all about for me Mm -hmm. have you learned to do that Caroline because you're at the intersection of so many different dimensions all the the nations in which you've lived the experiences that you've had it's so multi-dimensional have you learned to do that I hope so. I think that's what I strive to do every day, kind of being like, really, who am I? And am I showing up truly? Um, but it's a challenge. Even when I go back home to Germany, I have the concept of home. Home is London and home, home is Germany. I speak a different language. I get called a different nickname, my childhood nickname. You know, um, I sometimes wear different clothes. It's whatever is left in my old childhood wardrobe. Um, that thankfully still fits um, 15, 16 years later. But then it is about questioning, like, okay, how can I show up as me and still be that and, and not change like a chameleon? I always thought I'm a cultural chameleon. And now I'm like, no, I, I, yes, I can morph in, I can adapt and I can adjust. And even my accent changes when I'm back in Ireland. I get a little bit of an Irish twang. 
which I absolutely love. And I'm like, yes, it's about being that chameleon, but not actually just changing colors to blend in, but being true to your core. So then tell us a little bit about professional life and what your journey's been there. So my first professional experience was in in teaching. I took part in a a two-year-long leadership development program that's called Teach First. I think in America, you have an equivalent called Teach for America, where they place graduates for two years in a difficult school where to be a Teach First school, about 30% or more than 30% of the children need to be on free school meals. And we're really placed there to try and make a difference and really work with the children that might not otherwise get a chance or an opportunity. And it it was eye-opening. So I, I gained my teaching qualification there, then realized very quickly that I wasn't quite ready just to stay in education. I so passionately believe about you know helping people maximize their potential. And that's what it always was for me about that. But I kind of wanted to have a bigger impact and see more. And I also felt I was a little bit too young just to stay in education. I'm like, who am I to teach these children? So I then um, I joined a consultancy, um, PA Consulting, they're called. They're, they were partner of Teach First at the time and joined their people and talent team and worked as a consultant um, for four years. Um, large sort of change programs, um, a lot with the, with the UK government, um, which was rewarding. But at the time, I felt it's it's still not hitting the spot. It's not hitting kind of what my sort of deep mm. passions are. And I then got involved internally and helped them set up their organisation health proposition and sitting on that sort of steering group and working group for mental health and well-being and acted as a mental health champion. And it was quite new at the time, a couple of years ago, and, and just kind of Really, yeah, worked my way into that and then qualified as um, a mindfulness teacher and also as a transformational life coach and thought I wanted to go down more that route and really develop that side of the career. And then it was, you know, it's the pandemic. So many things happened. I had grand plans of taking potentially a sabbatical sometime out and really focusing on that coaching side of things and really having that impact and helping someone in their own sort of journey and finding out who they are and who they want to be. And in the end, I didn't go down that route. And that's because I got approached by Fidelity International um, to step in in a new role as their well-being lead and design and deliver their well-being strategy. And I was like, that's too good an opportunity to turn down. That's exactly allowing me to combine all the different things I'm doing. I was like, it's like a patchwork puzzle. And someone created that role and it's got Caroline written on it. So, yeah. And then I changed plans and been doing that for pretty much exactly a year and a bit now. So tell us how that's going. And I think there will be a lot of listeners out there, Caroline, that don't know exactly what it means to approach health and well-being in the workplace and how you do that. So could you share with us a little bit about your approach and what you've learned? Because I think that's become a priority Mm -hmm. for so many organizations around the world after suffering through more than two years of the pandemic. It's become a priority. Absolutely. So the approach that we're taking is a holistic approach. Um, So looking at the workplace, the mind, the body, but then life, that's kind of everything that's outside of it, sort of financial well-being, but also looking at our dynamic working, flexible working, work-life integration. I don't really believe in work-life balance. I think these days it really is work-life integration. So I say we have these sort of four pillars and each pillar is equally important. I kind of developed that uh, based on back to my German roots, the Brandenburg Gate, and being like, that's a really strong building. And if more than, you know, if you knocked a pillar out or more than one pillar would get knocked out, the whole thing would collapse. So almost saying like all elements of well-being are equally important. It's not just about mental health. 
It's about having the right workplace set up, making the right workplace adjustments for someone that they may need, having a psychological safe environment, having the right support at the workplace, fostering social connections and networks. That's really important. But then, yes, the second pillar, it is about that mental health provision, having a good employee assistance program in place, uh, mental health first aiders. As I said, creating that environment, removing that stigma, um, as I said, where it is okay to ask for help and employees feel like they can ask for help. And then the third pillar is about the body, which maybe is the, the most obvious pillar, but it is sort of promoting that healthy lifestyle, making sure even like, you know, that that food that is served in the canteens is very healthy, encouraging healthy exercise, but also having the right work and ergonomic sort of workstation set up because we've spent so much of our sort of, you know, times actually sitting down. And then, as I mentioned, the last pillar, that's all about life and everything outside and helping people kind of thrive with everything else. And for us, that's based on a really strong foundation. So it's about having the right manager support um, really employee engagement. People need to know what is available. So often we're like, oh, that's great. I didn't know. Um, it's that piece, but also having that sort of, we call it a well-being standard. We're now working, because um, we're in so many different countries, working on actually what is the benefits provision that we have available? What does best look like in each area? What's the experience? Is that is that different? How can we actually make sure that there is a similar experience across all? What is the standard we want sort of, you know, really everywhere to kind of adhere to? That's another sort of big part of that, uh, of the foundation. But then also that senior leadership support and buy-in. So that's kind of how we're setting this up. And then it's, I guess, the first step for me was just not doing an audit as a bit of a hard work, but it's kind of really understanding what do we have in place already? Because so often, that more often than not, I think organizations offer a lot of brilliant support, but they just can't communicate it in the right way. So I kind of aligned everything that we are offering to the different pillars and then actually look, well, and what potentially is missing? And what does good really look like? And what do our employees need? So really listening to them as well, having that listening strategy in place and employee engagement survey, really looking at that sort of feedback and what can really have the, the most impact. And that's kind of what we're looking at now and really have that, yeah, uh, drive that forward um, in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And yes. I always say it's more than fruit bowl on yoga class. Like if someone asks me, yeah, I, I usually <laughs> say that, right. you know, when I, when I speak somewhere being like, don't worry, I do more than fruit bowl on yoga class. And they all just laugh in relief because I know exactly that that's what went through their mind. That's right. That's right. So let's go back to your framework. So your framework is four elements, workplace, mind, body, and life. Yeah. And the idea is that these are mutually reinforcing and there's an integration among these four. But as you've pursued this initiative, Caroline, what have you learned? Have you, do you give equal emphasis to all four? Have you learned that perhaps one is more deficient than the others? What have you learned so far in your research and your application? I think all four are equally important, but there are certain times when you need to give more emphasis on one or the other. So just looking at what is going on in the world, you know, sometimes you really do need to look at that mental health support. And, you know, if there is a political crisis in certain countries' areas, you've been actually, you know, you can get that mental health support. This is what we kind of can do for you right now. So I do think you need to dial it up and down um, at certain times, the communication as well. But as I said, we are early on. I do think you need all four to really help employees thrive. Equally, the financial well-being, that's something that's coming really into play now with the cost of living rising and everything. So looking what support can we you know, provide there. So I think it shifts, but I think you always kind of need to have the same, uh, same baseline. But then, you know, you might 
invest a little bit more more in the others, but you can't ever just ignore one of them completely, one of the elements. No, you can't. Yeah, that's so true. It's interesting that the stewardship that we perceive that we have in the workplaces, it's expanded. It wasn't but just a few years ago. And we we really, the conversation about at least three of these elements, mind, body, and life, we didn't talk too much about that. And yet now it is the conversation. And we realize that we have a bigger, broader, deeper stewardship, a more holistic stewardship to the employee. Is that something that is universally acknowledged among the people that you work with, Caroline? Or are there people that still take issue with that approach or that point of view? I think it's being acknowledged now. And I always feel like you always have to look on the bright side. If one good thing is coming from the pandemic, it is that that's really being taken seriously now because everyone struggled. It's like, is that sort of, you know, that that image of, you know, uh, you're being faced by the same storm, but we're all in different boats. So yes, we all might've had slightly different experiences and we are a global company. So in some countries, restrictions might've been harder than in others, but I think it's been universal that we got hit with a change that we didn't ask for and we needed to adapt and sort of everyone's resilience got tested. Everyone at some point, I am sure, has felt anxious and actually then kind of could relate to that. And I also think it's, we have now seen that remote work really does work. We were forced to work remotely. And I think that just massively accelerated that journey. And now, for example, we are full on a dynamic working company. So everyone is on a almost people on a hybrid contract um, where you can work flexibly based on what works best for you, for your team, for the business, but also the clients that we serve. And that's just been massively progressed. And I think through things like that and initiatives where people now actually realize I can integrate caring for, you know, my children or, or family relatives, anyone that needs care and work at the same time because I can work flexible hours and flexible location. And it's kind of okay to ask for that because it was okay during the pandemic. It's okay now as well. I think we just think about it slightly differently and just kind of do realize we are a whole person. We're not just, you know, we can't leave ourselves behind when we enter the office yeah. because you know we're looking into each other's living rooms sometimes you know when we do work sort of you know, remotely and so I think there is just that barrier of we put on a suit and we go to the office and that's our life there that's just been taken away so that automatically we're thinking more holistically about the person yeah and it's it's I really and we've destigmatized a lot of things during the pandemic haven't we yeah. as you said now, even after we're able to ask for permission or we're able to talk about some of these things, whereas before we wouldn't even bring it up. Exactly. So we've destigmatized a lot of things. Yeah. And I think that's a really positive thing to come out of it. And it's, I think, the more conversations we have, in particular about mental health and just saying, you know what, today I'm not feeling X, Y, and Z, the easier it gets. And I do think that there are still in we're in a global organization, as I said, each country is sort of at a slightly different stage. I mean, to be really mindful of that, but also really embrace the future there and, and do destigmatize things. I just can't wait to see what the world looks like in 10, 20 years. <laughs> and right. it probably is just absolutely normal to kind of just being like, you know what, you know, I'm not feeling well today. It's, you know, if someone has a broken leg and as it comes in and crutches, everyone is like, oh my God, what happened? Are you okay? Do you need anything? Whereas with mental health, it's not visible. It's much, much harder. And it's easier to mask that and hide that as well. And I 
would love to see. And I really do think in the next years that will come where people don't feel like they have to put on a mask or, or hide when they do have, you know, and if they are struggling. And that's exactly the culture that we want to create at, um, at Fidelity as well, where everyone can be their true selves and ask for help, as I said, when they need it and feel like it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the insights that you've gleaned from your professional experience. Well, probably personal and professional. I don't know that you can really discriminate, but let's talk about some of those, Caroline. Let's go through your gems. So would you take us through some of the gems that you've gathered along the way? Yeah, I think the first one I wanted to share is very simple, just two words, never assume. And it might be stating the obvious, because I actually do think we still automatically do that. We just form an opinion because we had a certain experience. Therefore, clearly, everyone else must be experiencing it in the same way, too. And that's just absolutely not the case. I think the first time I've really realized that is when I was teaching. And I'm like, but I said this five times. What do you mean? You don't get it. And they're like, well, we just don't. You're like, okay. And you have to find yet another way how to explain something, particularly like German grammar. Don't get me started. It's a nightmare. <laughs> and it's so difficult. And I was like, okay. um, you know, in particular as me as a native speaker, I'd never been taught grammar in that way. So then teaching that to someone. And I was like, you just can't assume that someone understands something or thinks something or feels something because that's your own experience. And did you learn that the most as a teacher? Is this where this really clicked? I think that's where it really clicked. I think I've always sort of been brought up to, you know, don't judge a book by its cover and, you know, don't treat people like you want to be treated, treat people how they want to be treated. Uh, but that's where I really sort of realized it because if it's you and you know, in front of a room of 30 children and you're trying to kind of, you know, bring across a concept, um, yeah, you, you can be pushed to your limits, particularly having been quite unexperienced at that point, sort of a baptism of fire. But yeah, and there's just so many different learning styles, I guess, and we are all so different. And particularly one area I'm really interested in is looking at neurodiversity. And in the UK, one in seven people are set to be neurodivergent as their brain learns or processes information slightly differently. And I think that's something really to embrace because um, we don't want groupthink, you know, we do want to have a culture of innovation. And that means we do need to embrace people that think differently. But if we assume and just treat everyone the same or provide the same provisions for everyone, then we try to box people or, or keep them in and not actually support them. So someone that might be um, neurodiverse then actually can't flourish and can't bring, bring everything to the table that they might want to. Yeah, there's so much there. But the first time I really noticed that is, you know, in the classroom and you do have to differentiate. You have mixed ability sets. And and sometimes I really despair. And I was like, I don't know what you need. And you really have to then spend that time with them to really understand what is it that that child needs? How can I really make that accessible to them? And, and it's exactly the same at the workplace. I, I don't think it stops there. And it's really about, yeah, how can you make the right workplace adjustments for someone um, and have the conversations and really ask someone, well, how do you thrive? How do you work best? When do you do your best work? You know, and, and if someone doesn't work well in, in, in the mornings being like, OK, well, maybe if you really you know, need to have a big project where you need to think creatively and that best happens in the evening, allowing them to work flexibly and have that focus time that they might need in the in the evening rather than first thing in the morning. And just giving people autonomy to kind of move things around that best suit them and making these adjustments and just asking people really, what do you need and what can we do? 
that's really important. Caroline, how do you check yourself so that you're not going back into a pattern of assuming, of making assumptions? How do you do that? Because we're prone to do that. Mm-hmm. It's a cognitive shortcut. It's the way that we make sense of life. It's the way that we interact. It's the way that we create order out of chaos. So how do you stop yourself, check yourself to not do that? Really good question. How do you stop yourself? I think it's literally just taking that pause sometimes before you respond to something. You know, very often be like, this is my urge to say that and being like, no, no, no. Why is that my urge to respond in that way? And then more often we have a strong urge to do something. That's usually because we're going into autopilot because something we're kind of, you know, pre-wired to act in a certain way or respond in a certain way. And then I think in those sort of moments, it's about just catching yourself, stepping back and being like, well, why is that response? Equally, what we're sort of training our, our managers um, really. And, and so how do you have supportive conversations with a team member that might be having a difficult time? So it's about, you know, not colluding or not jumping to assumptions. And someone says, oh, X happened to me. And you're like, that happened to me too. I know exactly how you must be feeling. This is what you should be doing. That's solutionizing when all that that person needs is probably just to be listened to. So it's about asking questions and just digging a little bit deeper. And I think that's, in general, you know, with a never assume, it's, you know, rather than speak, listen and ask questions, because then you're allowing that other person to tell their version of the story or the events. And then you can even voice and voice your view being like, for me, that sounds like X. Is that how you're perceiving the situation? And they might be like, no, absolutely not. I didn't say that. And then you're like, oh, that was an assumption. But I think you can voice it out loud but in a way that isn't sort of with an exclamation mark and a full stop, but with a question mark to actually invite more dialogue. So we've got to be more explicit. Well, it reminds me of the distinction between being in a mode of discovery Mm. versus being in a mode of advocacy. What I hear you saying, Caroline, is that we've got to stop ourselves. We need to stay longer in a mode of, of discovery and we need to listen for comprehension. You said something amazing. One in seven people in the UK is neurodiverse. Well, it's probably similar in, here in the States. If that's true, then most of the time that's invisible to us, at least initially, right? And it will probably stay invisible unless we're really earnestly in a mode of discovery. We're asking and we're listening carefully. So, You got my attention on that one, Caroline. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. And I think it's about that discovery with yourself as well, which is kind of going into my second gem, which is about self-awareness is everything. So I'm currently on my own personal journey with getting an ADHD diagnosis, which is quite, you know, takes quite a while to kind of get that sort of formalized. But the more I'm learning about it, I'm having these aha moments. And I'm also almost, it's, yeah. It's challenging for me to kind of rethink, oh, this is, that makes sense now. This is why you love deadlines. This is why in university you stayed up all night and you got your distinction um, in your dissertation, but you almost killed yourself in the process, drinking more energy drinks than water and working through every single night because you wrote them in a week. Was that you, Caroline? That is me. You know, I try <laughs> for the deadline, you know. Really? And, I, and, and there's so many different things where I'm just unpicking, being like, oh, I tend to hyperfocus. When you give me a project I love, boom, that is me gone. And uh, and then I get that real attention to detail and I go for it. But equally tasks that don't stimulate me or my brain in that way 
I take a lot longer to get going. So it's really about managing my time, putting different focus time and knowing what level of stimulation I need. When is it best for me to work in the office? When is it better for me to work at home? Having noise cancelling headphones as and when I need them. And just getting that permission, I'm very fortunate that I've got a very supportive manager and a very supportive team and in general, an organization where I feel like I I can be that or say that or being like, hold on, we need to break that down. Now, what are the steps? When do I need to do what by? Just to help my brain to kind of work in it in the best way. But that's something I'm literally, it's, it's quite new to me as I took that role on and sort of neurodiversity and disability and that enabled side of things is also part of my role is not just sort of the mental well-being or the wider well-being and the more I looked into that and researched that and how do we best sort of support people and create that sort of neurodiverse friendly workplace where we actually actively attract talent and people that think differently because that's what we want we want people that you can't solve the world's problems of everything's the same you only solve a problem that everyone's tried solving by thinking slightly differently and um, that's when I kind of realized hold on I think there's something there. And I put myself um, through our workplace um, adjustment process as something we're now sort of rolling out globally. We've partnered with an external enablement specialist. So anyone that is facing a barrier at work, whether they consider themselves to have a disability or not, can access that workplace adjustment sort of process and have different uh, neurodiversity screening or workplace needs assessment or disability specific assessment as well. And I went through that and came back with, okay. I think I need to go through a proper diagnosis here. There's something there I'm recognising. And I find it fascinating. I went through all the different stages being like, no, not me really, but I'm doing well, I'm thriving, I'm successful in my career, this and that. And I'm like, yeah, but if you think about it, sometimes it's hard going. You feel like you're constantly battling against your own brain rather than working with it. And now I'm putting those things in place to work with it and be okay with, you know what? It is what it is. I love a deadline. That will never change. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now, you framed it, Caroline, you framed it this way. You said self-awareness is everything. In other words, it is a massively important priority. And then you've shared a little bit about your own journey. But from a practical standpoint, and for our listeners, what advice would you give on how to become more self-aware Do you have any specific counsel about the how? Because it's hard. It is hard. Yeah. Now, I think you asked what is very hard. We live in a world of noise. There's so much out there. We have Google at our fingertips. Any question you have, you can just type in an answer and someone has a different opinion on it and tries to sell you X, Y, and Z sort of, you know, well-being product or coaching, whatever it may be. So it is hard. And I think that's why I feel like you have to go back to your own true being, like what's right for you? and listen to that. And it takes time to figure that out. And I think the best place to really, or for me, figure that out is actually to disconnect from the outside world. I remember I went traveling a couple of years ago and I was like, oh, Caroline, she's off to find herself. And I'm like, no, I'm here to lose everything else. You know, I'm okay with who I am, but the noise or you get, you know, outside or you get dragged into different directions. So I um, used to go to the London Buddhist Center and went on um, one of their meditation retreats where you're sort of 10 days um, living in a community and no phone, no contact with the outside world. And I think about 
the middle three days were completely silent. Um, and all my friends were like, Caroline, you not talking, you in silence. How did that you manage that? You. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be you. That can't be you. And I was like, it was hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there, there are more intense versions like the pasta where you, you, know, you don't even have any paper to write anything down and you're really with your thoughts. But I'm just saying, don't necessarily book yourself on you know, an extreme retreat like that, but just carve out time in your day or in your life, whether it's you know an hour a day or a weekend, where you do actually really switch off and you're just with yourself. I think a lot of the time people aren't comfortable in their own company. I now go to the cinema by myself or go for dinner by myself and holiday by myself because I can and I don't feel weird sitting in that cafe and ordering something where other, other people would be like, oh my God, people are judging, I'm here alone. I'm like, mm. no, you need to be comfortable in your own skin. But yeah. the only way you can do that is by actually starting to spend time with yourself. And by that, I mean, not a Friday night in alone, watching a film or being on your phone, but really by yourself. Mm-hmm. For me, that's in nature as well, or really disconnecting. And that's something I still practice just to kind of get away. Um, that's why I went down the mindfulness um, mindfulness route as well to quieten my mind. I'm a massive overthinker. There was so much noise. And I was like, again, similar to when I went to study that master's in cultural identity studies, being like, let's learn everything about it because I think that I'm onto something there. But that's that whole practice of being mindful. And that doesn't mean formal meditation and sitting down, but it's just picking up on things. Why am I feeling, you know, that sentiment in my body? Or why is, why am I responding in a certain way? And then, you know, you can even just take a little note or, you know, if it happens at work and then later during the day or on a break, sit down and just reflect, well, why did I respond in that way? I think that's really helpful. Of course, you can get professional help as well. I mean, I'm a coach myself and I really advocate that working with someone that can help you towards your goals and kind of unpick really what your values are, where you want to go, or equally working with a therapist as well to kind of really dig deeper and look backwards and really understand where do you fit in? Who are you really? I think that's brilliant. You may not need to go off on a retreat for 10 days, but what you're saying is, at some point, and you may do other things that are helpful to you, but at some point, you've got to create some stillness, some quiet. You've got to unplug. You've got to remove noise. I think you're right. That's got to be part of the equation for self-awareness. Absolutely. Because if you're constantly being stimulated, you never stop. Yeah. So when I mentioned that, that sort of identity crisis, I mean, at university, I was always go, go, go out every single night. I don't think I had a single meal by myself. I was always on the move and I loved it and it was brilliant. But once I was out of that sort of structure and you've been like, I now need to need to make discussions and I, excuse me, I need to now need to make choices and where do I want to go? I didn't know. So I don't even know myself. Yeah. I don't know how to be alone. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need. Who am I? Um, mm-hmm. And that's because I never spent time by myself. And I know the reverse is also challenging. You know, there is loneliness as well. A lot of people feel lonely and don't really feel connected. So it's not, I think, about the number of people you're surrounded with. You do need to have connections with others, but you also need to connect with yourself. Perhaps the greatest irony of all is that you're surrounded with people and you're interacting all the time and you still feel alone. Exactly. And we're seeing that a lot too, because yeah. the, it's interaction, but it's not connection. That's exactly it. And there's a difference. Yeah. And for yeah. me... You know, the opposite to loneliness is connection. Mm -hmm. So I can be completely by myself, but not feel lonely. And sometimes when I'm completely by myself, I feel completely isolated. And that's because I'm not connected with myself or don't feel like I have that sort of set up. 
And it's about just being mindful of that and being aware of that and investing in that support network around you as well and those, you know, in those ties and people that can support you as well. I think everyone needs to have sort of a crew in the background that can call you out as well, being like, I don't really like that sentence, but you don't really fe- seem yourself today. What does that mean? I'm not really sure. But if someone else notices that, I mean, like things seem a little bit off, and that's when you should step back and be like, hold on, what's going on there? Yeah. You need someone that can do that. Yeah. Well, take us through your third gem, Caroline. Yeah. My third gem, I had to really think about like, what else do I really want to leave our listeners with? And it brings me back to walking the Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrimage in Spain um, to Santiago de Compostela. It's about 750 kilometers um, long. And I did the Portuguese stretch from Porto to Santiago, which is only about 260 kilometers. But you just walk um, with your backpack, all your belongings, and you stay sort of in pilgrim hostels. They're called albergues. Um, and it's a real community. You meet people from all walks of lives, of all ages, and you're just there on that journey together. And the beautiful thing is you don't really use Google Maps. It's almost sort of frowned upon and you have little guidebooks that can tell you where you're going. But actually what you really follow is yellow arrows or the sort of the scallop shell, the Camino shell. And the yellow arrows always point you in the right direction where the Camino is going. And I absolutely embrace that, just looking out for little signs and yeah, that point you in the right directions. And I think so often in our life, we do meet a crossroads and we don't know where to go or we need to make a big decision. You could go either way. And I think, yeah, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or the universe or whether you know things are meant to be. It's just about following different signs, listening to yourself. That's really where it goes back to that self-awareness piece, but also seizing opportunities when they are presented to you. I think very often people don't have sort of faith in their own abilities and it comes back to this imposter syndrome. I think it's sort of said, a study said about 70% of adults are said to experience imposter syndrome at least once in their lifetime. And it is when you don't really believe that you deserve an opportunity or you're not good enough. And then sometimes we get held back by that. And I think it's about spotting that little yellow arrow, that opportunity that someone gives you and actually taking it and not holding back. And just being open-minded, like when you are feeling a little bit lost, just watching out for what there is for you, the people around you um, that can guide you and just living your life with eyes wide open. That's what it is for me. I am a spiritual person. I'm also a religious person. So for me, that has another meaning, another layer. But again, I don't think it is necessary about that. But it's just about living your life with eyes wide open, looking for signs and accepting them. And kind of seizing opportunities and letting go as well, because we can't always control what happens next. If we look at it with the pandemic, that was imposed on us as it was a big change. But then we choose how we react to it. It's very true. And it makes me think of resilience, Caroline, Mm. because even along the way, as you take your journey, there will be opportunities, but there will also be threats. There will also be failures. Uh, you're not going to get it right every time. So you're going to make some mistakes along the way and some things aren't going to work out. So resilience becomes a very important part of this. And as you say, referring to the pandemic, sometimes you choose the challenges, but sometimes the challenges choose you. Exactly. That's a lovely way of looking at it. And they impose themselves on you. And here you are, and you've got to respond. As you said, you got to respond, right? Definitely. It's about, you can't change the cards you're being dealt dealt to you, but you can choose how you play them. 
And I think you do need to have a playbook or a manual. And often it is a new opportunity and you don't have that manual at hand. So again, it's looking out for who can help you. Again, those little yellow arrows, like who, who can I ask for help? Who can guide me in the right direction? Um, who can help me get to where I want to be? That's the other sort of piece. You know, I, I do see life as a journey and we need to kind of know where what our goals are, what we want to reach. And then it's about what are the steps that we can take to get there. And yeah, resilience is so important because you'll always, always um, be dealt with uh, dealt setbacks or challenges. That's I don't think true. a journey is ever linear. It's always like a goody pig right. three times around and five steps back and one forward. Yeah. And, you know, and then there's a river you have to cross, you know, and build a yeah. raft. <laughs> yeah. When we put it on paper, it looks clean and tidy and linear. But the reality yeah. is it's messy and it's difficult and we don't see the reality of the terrain so true exactly for me the big thing there is just the power of letting go and that's my big challenge i think for very you know well, most of my life i always try to control everything because that feels safe as human beings we like being in control we like knowing what's happening best uh, happening next because then it's predictable but i'm actually learning that by that you're actually stifling a lot of joy or spontaneity or things that can happen so i used to plan my diary literally like weeks in advance and knew exactly what I was doing because then I wouldn't be alone. I would have something great on and it's just go, 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 go. And now I'm like, you know what? It's exhausting. I don't know how I'm going to be feeling on X, Y, and Z day. I don't know what's going to be happening. I don't even know what the weather will be like. Let's just plan some things, but leave room for that creative play and leave room for the unknown or what life might throw you so you can then actually go for it and embrace it. And again, that that is all about sort of stepping back and, and, and allowing so for me, letting go of control, that's huge. I still work on that, but I know it's the right thing to be doing. So don't overplan, don't overprogram. There's got to be some space in there. Yeah. There needs to be some space. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not saying just, you know, throw away everything and just, <laughs> you know, that isn't right either, but it's about finding the right balance. Yeah, that's I'd right. like to think I'm, I'm creating that now in my life. And again, it's about finding what works for you or what you need to find that balance and or for your mental health or you really what yeah what works for you so i now do something which i've recently discovered and i absolutely love it and bear with me on that one ecstatic dance it is wonderful really forget <laughs> dancing like no one is watching it's like dance like a toddler that doesn't care whether there's music uh -huh. um so it's completely it's a conscious movement practice i guess it's you know no alcohol no drugs no shoes no talking and no phones and you are just with a group of people and you just let go of everything and you're just completely free. And I'm like, there is that. And then there's a choreographed Zumba class, you know, both are probably fun. It is whatever each and everyone needs. But I know that there I really need or I can let go and I feel so refreshed afterwards. Um, and that's because I, I used to cling on to control and structure so much. And now I'm deliberately putting myself in a space that's completely unstructured and unguided. And I, beginning that's terrifying you felt oh how i'm being judged how, do i look good whatever it is and then you just let go of all of that and you're just there in your presence and i absolutely love that and i take so much from that and i try to apply that to my life as well just being like yeah letting go of who you think you should be and just being you and as i said creating that psychological space for people around so they can be themselves too well caroline Thank you for these gems, these insights. Uh, never assume self-awareness is everything. 
and look out for the little arrows in your life. And thank you for this rich and insightful conversation. You are, I would describe you as not only a passionate, but a compassionate person. I think those two attributes uh, come together in you. So I can't thank you enough for just a brilliant conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.